And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. Of course, it's Monday as we kick off the first week of April. It's the beginning of the second quarter, which means earnings right around the corner about to kick that all off we just seems like we just finished earnings season now it's time to start it again so that's going to help move the markets as well obviously now the expectation for companies are that things are improving on earnings and in fact earnings estimates now starting to rise here that's going to provide a potentially more bullish outlook for stocks if earnings start to improve. Um, secondly, though, also as we start the second quarter, we also get the we had the end of the month portfolio rebalancing, and that led to a very nice gain in the markets last week. And now we move into the second quarter. So uh, April tends to be one of the stronger months of the year. Uh, we're also wrapping up the last two seasonally strong months for the S&P and the last three for the NASDAQ. So April, May, and June for the NASDAQ. April and May are the end of the seasonally strong six months for the S&P 500. So again, as we look over the next couple of months, positive bias to markets. We'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But big news over the weekend, of course, was OPEC, OPEC+. Plus. So you thought I was going to say the Trump indictment, but I didn't. It's, it's OPEC plus. Uh, OPEC plus over the weekend talking about a hike to, uh, sorry, a cut of production, uh, which is also leading to a fairly decent jump this morning in oil prices. In fact, oil prices up about five and a half percent this morning, right around eighty dollars a barrel. Now, interestingly enough, oil prices had been correcting. Now we wrote an article. Um, right at the end of last year saying oil prices are going to have a correction. We'll get a pullback. That's exactly what's happened here. We had gotten up to about $115 a barrel. Uh, oil prices were extremely overbought. At, at that time, we said, look, oil prices are going to correct. And this year, energy has been one of the worst performing sectors of the market. Oil prices have declined right to the 200-day moving average, which they found very good support. And ironically, I don't know if uh, OPEC is watching the same technical indicators. They go, hey, right? Uh, hit the 200-day moving average. That's about all the pain we want in terms of oil prices. Of course, OPEC gets their money from selling oil. So if you want prices up, you cut production. Exactly what they did over the weekend. A big jump. Now, again, this has gotten the markets a bit excited this morning. But really, oil price is still pretty much in a downtrend at the moment. Again, this, this uh, cut to production is certainly going to help lift prices. That means higher gas prices at the pump. Certainly not friendly to the Federal Reserve, who is not seeing inflation really come down as fast as they had hoped. Uh, last week, we saw the PCE, that is the Personal Consumption's Expenditure Index. Now, that's the inflation number that the Fed pays most attention to. That number remains stubbornly high. And if you get into Supercore, uh, PCE, that is actually going up. So again, there is nothing friendly about the inflation data coming into the Fed that would suggest that they're going to cut rates. In fact, the odds of a rate hike at the next meeting for the Fed is now pretty much priced in that they're going to hike another 25 basis points to the next meeting. You know, the hope has been, and again, uh, the market has been rallying on this hope that, the, of course, the Fed is going to cut and magically start reducing interest rates. You know, at a point, we haven't seen that yet. Um, you know, so, so again, this is, this is kind of the thing is that inflation still really isn't giving the Fed any indication 
that they should be cutting rates, much less stopping hiking rates at this point. But interestingly, though, as, uh, as we talked about with oil prices hitting the 200-week moving average, and again, 200 weeks, think about that for a second. Uh, 50 trading weeks in a year, give or take, that's four years. That's a four-year moving average. Um, if we look at the S&P, pretty much the same thing here. The S&P came down in October, touched the 200-week moving average, bounced right off that. Again, keeping that long-term bullish trend intact. So again, the secular bull market that started back in 2012 remains intact despite uh, the correction last year and lots of concerns and angst. We're still not in a bear market, by the way. Uh, this is still just a correction within a trending bull market. The reason that the, the correction was so big last year was because of that massive deviation that we created from $5 trillion worth of liquidity. We had a very big deviation from that long-term moving average. So again, you had to correct that just in a normal correction process. Uh, over time, the market regularly tests you know, this 200-week moving average. It's been a very, very strong support line. Uh, really ever since it broke above it in 2012. So again, that was kind of a, a very good, strong buy signal back in October. Markets bottom there and have continued to perform uh, at this point like you would expect coming off a correction. So prices rising, valuations, etc. So uh, the, the important point here, though, is now what happens next. And this is going to be kind of the key conversation we're going to be having here over the next few months. There is one camp over here that says the world has got to end and inflation is, uh, you know, is, is the Fed's going to keep hiking interest rates until they break something and that's going to cause a much bigger decline in the markets. That's certainly a reasonable view. The other camp is, and this is the interesting one, is that, well, the data has been about as bad as it can get. It can only get better from here. Earnings estimates now being ratcheted up. Analysts now expecting that quarter one was the trough in earnings, quarter two will show our first improvement, mildly, but a little bit. And then earnings actually begin to accelerate pretty quickly, but this is because economic growth has to now start increasing. This is the view. The view is, is that the worst of the economic drawdown has now passed us, and from here on out, economic data is going to start improving. And now that's a problem for the Fed. Because again, if economic data improves, that means that more people are getting a job and things are doing okay, people feel better, so they start spending more money. As they spend more money, that creates what? More inflation. And yet the Fed is trying to get inflation back down to 2% and we're nowhere near that goal. So this is gonna be a very interesting battle here over the next several months between what the Fed wants and what the market is hoping for. And those are two very, very different outcomes. I don't have the answer for you. I wish I could. I wish I could tell you who's going to win that fight. But, you know, you just never know. I've seen, uh, I've seen fights in the past that go, that guy's going to get killed and he winds up winning the fight. So, you know, you, know, you never know who's going to win these things. But this is going to be an interesting thing. But this is going to be the, the issue that as investors, there's two things we have to pay attention to. One is that the markets are trending bullishly. We've got to honor and respect that. It is what it is. You may like it, you may not like it, you may not believe it, etc. But it is trending positively and we have to give that respect to the markets and trade that accordingly. But we also need to be aware of the risk. And again, I don't have any idea what the outcome is ultimately going to be. Again, between the political dynamics, the, geopol the geopolitical dynamics, the economic dynamics, and just simply how markets work, 
outcomes can be wide and varied. So again, this is why we spend a lot of time focusing on the technicals in our daily market commentary. We give you a trading update every day. Um, you can subscribe for that for free at the website. We deliver it every morning at 7.30. Because again, in the short term, we just have to manage our portfolio for what it is, not necessarily what we want it to be. And that's the situation we're in now. A lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. Again, you know, when I, when I tweet stuff out or when I write things talking about earnings improving, I get a lot of lashback because it doesn't make sense. But it is what it is. And we'll have to just uh, to work with that as we go along. Okay, so a few things to get into this morning, of course, uh, as we kind of start looking out here, not just the, the oil cut production, which is gonna lead to potentially a higher uh, price of gas at the pump, but again, what does this all mean for earnings estimates? And, and as we begin to go into earnings season, what is the expectation as we move into earnings season? Is it gonna be better than worse than what people expect? All that coming up this morning on the show, so stick around, lots of stuff to get into. Get by the website, our latest newsletter is out on the website right now. So simply just go to the website, click on insights, you can write there, our, day, our most recent blog post, our daily market commentary, the newsletter, it's all there for you. Make sure that you stay up to date with the markets and your money, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Hey, welcome back. So this morning, so just uh, talk a little bit about OPEC and their decision to cut oil production again. You know, it's very interesting because the White House immediately responded to the OPEC plus cut saying that, you know, this wasn't advisable for OPEC to cut production at this point because, well, the White House is committed to try to lower energy costs for the average American. And that's certainly admirable. Of course, remember, um, we drained a record amount of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve last year to try to lower the price of oil at the pump. And it worked a bit to a degree, but but again, kind of the bigger issue was the increase in supply of oil on a global basis. And again, it's always about supply and demand. And, you know, after we had a very, very strong return in energy stocks uh, last year, they've been one of the worst performing sectors this year. What's interesting is, is that it seems to me that the White House and others forget that countries dependent upon oil revenue for their economy might not like lower oil prices, potentially, right? And when oil prices get to a point, as I said, you know, when oil prices actually touch the 200 week moving average that's the lowest level so if you take a so think about what a moving average is for a moment a moving average is the 
average of a price over some period of time. So, you know, we talk a lot in the markets about the 50-day moving average or the 200-day moving average. And what that is, is that's the average price over a specific period of time. So you go back 50 days and you say, what was, you take those 50 days of prices, you average them. You say, okay, the average price over those 50 days was X. Tomorrow, you'll drop off the first day, add the next day, and that's your average price for 50 days. And, and so this is why you see moving averages trend either higher or lower, depending on what the average price has been over some period of time. So it's interesting, right, that oil prices were $115 a barrel. Now, that deviation, so now think about this for a moment. And this is, this is you know, a lot of people look at technical analysis and they go, oh, it's hocus pocus, it's voodoo, it's whatever, right? But moving averages are simply just telling you something about the market. Where has been the average price over a certain period of time? Now, in order to have an average, prices have to do what? Trade both above and below that average over that period of time. That's how you get the average. And so if I'm running a business and I go, well, you know, over the last four years, my average price for my product has been $50, right? Then I kind of have a baseline to work with about economic supply and demand. When we were at $115 a barrel in oil, that deviation above that long-term four-year price suggested that oil prices were too extended to the upside. There was too little supply, too much demand, right? Moving averages, again, since prices have to trade both above and below that average over a period of time, you go back four years, right, and look at that price data. Moving averages over long periods particularly work like gravity. So... When prices get too far above that moving average, there's a gravitational force that's eventually going to pull that price back towards that moving average. Because again, to have that average over a long period of time, prices have to trade above and below that average. Okay. So if I'm if I'm running a business and my price has been on average $50 a barrel and I've been enjoying, you know, $60, $65 for my product, right? and prices have declined back towards 50, and I've got a lot of inventory sitting around going, okay, this has been the average price here. I've got a lot of inventory. And if I keep this amount of inventory in stock, I'm going to have to start cutting prices in order to get people to buy my product, whatever it is. So maybe I better stop producing my product at this, at this pace so I can maintain what is my preferred profitability measure. I enjoyed a period where I was making a lot of money, right? But I'm back to where now I'm at this kind of base price that works for me as a business. So it's not surprising that OPEC Plus would, uh, would think about cutting production with the decline in oil prices. It's just supply and demand. There's too much supply, and, and again, if everybody's predicting a recession, 
next this year, next year, whenever it comes. If everybody's predicting a recession, what happens to demand during a recession? It declines, right? I mean, people are going to drive less. I mean, if, I, if, if, I, if I'm losing my job, it's very interesting. There was a story, just speaking of this, there was a story about housing coming in this morning. And the story was that more people are now including a contingency clause in their real estate contracts in case they lose their job. So in other words, I'll buy your house, but as long as I'm employed to closing, I'll buy your house. But if I lose my job between now and closing, then I can get out of the contract with no penalty. And so, so more people are putting that in because they're worried about losing their job. Why? And so, so if people are losing their job, what are they going to do? They're going to stop driving as much, right? They're not going to take a trip to here or there or wherever it is. And so demand for oil prices are going to go down. So if I'm, if I'm looking at that view and I'm an oil producer, then I'm going to cut production. It just makes sense, right? But see, this is the... We wouldn't have this problem. See, the White House right now would not have this problem. OPEC Plus could cut production, and we shouldn't care. We shouldn't care. Because in 2019, we were an oil exporting nation. We, had, we were producing more oil than we needed, and we were exporting the surplus. But, but again, we got into this whole, you know, Climate change, got to cut, you know, get get off fossil fuels, all this other stuff. So we started forcing companies to cut production, started having to import more, and now we've got a problem. In 2019, we were producing on average about 12.3, 12.4 million barrels a day. And in uh, 2022, we were down to 11.9 million. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot. So, as my father always said growing up, you know, decisions have consequences. And we need to start thinking more about the decisions we make. We can either be oil dependent or we can be oil independent. And if we were oil independent, we wouldn't care what OPEC Plus does. You can cut production to zero as far as we care. We don't care. You do whatever you want. We can control the price of our commodity in the United States because we produce enough oil ourselves. But these are the decisions we make. And so when we think about, you know, wanting to do certain things, and it's interesting now that uh, more and more states have now moved away from ESG in managing their pensions, et cetera. You know, there's this big push by BlackRock, and I wrote articles about this, about the ESG scam, which is this environmental social governance rating system. And it was a complete scam, and I wrote I wrote multiple pages about this on our website. If you just go to our website, type in ASG in the bar, you'll get it. But the point is, is that now people have woken up to this, saying this is just ridiculous, and it doesn't really work. 2022 was a great example of that. 2021, everybody hates energy stocks because they're not climate-friendly. 2022, they can't buy enough of them. This is exactly what we said would happen. We talked about multiple times here on the show that during the late 90s, right, it was all about sin stocks. Don't buy casinos, pornography, smoke, uh, tobacco makers, etc. Anything involved, alcohol producers, don't buy any of those sin stocks. Those were the best performing stocks after, after that. 
20, 2000, during the dot-com crash, those were the best place to be. And we said this on the show is that when we started this whole ESG thing, everybody hated energy stocks. And I go, yeah, this is going to work out exactly the same way, exactly what happened, right? And I said, it's all about performance at the end of the day. Whereas, you know, these, these virtue signaling ideas are fantastic until it comes down to making money. And when it comes to the financial markets, money's going to go to where money's being made. And in 2022, it wasn't in every other stock in the country. It was in the energy stocks. Those most hated, vile, despicable companies that were just manufacturing profit hand over fist, that's where people wanted to put their money. Not surprising. It's the way markets work. It's capitalism. It's how, how, how it happens. But it's interesting now because... The U.S. is now blaming OPEC, saying this is an unadvisable time to cut production. No, if I'm OPEC, I just got back to a four-year moving average in prices. I'm good with cutting production. I need to cut production to maintain prices at these levels. Not surprising that they did that. But this will be good for energy stocks. Uh, today, we're going to see you know oil stocks up a good bit. Um. Should see it, and we talked about here over the last couple of weeks to see this rotation, a bit of a rotation from technology stocks, which have really been on fire. The top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 have contributed 88% of the return since the beginning of this year. So probably going to start seeing a rotation out of tech stocks today. Futures are down on the NASDAQ, up on the Dow because of the oil weights inside of of. Uh, the Dow index. So Dow will be up today as oil prices hit $80 a barrel this morning. Still down from 115, right? But up from where they were on Friday. All right. Don't go away. Be right back. More of the Real Investment Show coming right up. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning interesting graphic out this morning i put out on twitter so if you follow me at lance roberts um on Twitter. By the way, I refuse to pay eight bucks a month for a little blue check mark. So it's it's just a it's a just a function of I'm just not paying eight bucks a month for something <laughs> that I don't really care about that much. And I don't care that much about social media. So but you know I do post stuff out there for you to have that I find interesting. But if you you know my tag is at Lance Roberts, right? And you know, there's a bunch of imposters out there that are taking my name and my image and my Twitter page and trying to promote things like crypto or whatever. Just understand, and I said this uh, on the on a, the Wealthy on podcast that over the weekend, I said, you know, I never, I will never DM you, I will never solicit you, I will never text you or tweet you something about an investment opportunity. Just we don't do that. 
So if you ever get something from what you think is me promoting something, it's not me, right? So easy way to check is just see how many followers they have. And that'll, they'll tell you all you need to know. So anyway, uh, I get a few emails every now and then saying, hey, you were reaching out to me to promote some crypto thing. No, that's not me. Um, anyway, on Twitter this morning, I did post out this chart uh, from Statista showing where revenue is made on, in the mobile phone industry. And I thought it was interesting because I, I was like, you know, I was just thinking about if Albert Einstein came back today and says, you know, what's the greatest invention since I've been gone? Right. Here's the guy that created the nuclear bomb. Right. <laughs> so, you know, if he came back and says, what's the greatest invention since my death? You know, somebody would hold up their phone and say, here it is. It contains all of the knowledge in the entire universe, and it's in the palm of my hand. He's like, that's fantastic. It's pretty amazing, actually. You think about what's contained in the phone. So you look at breakdown of, of where revenue is off mobile phones. Out of $431 billion in revenue from phones, this is the global app revenue generated on phones, out of 431 billion, 267 billion, more than 50% of the revenue created from that is from gaming. Another 43 billion comes from social media, 29 billion in entertainment, then some very small slivers for photo and video, lifestyle, and music. Now, if you notice what's missing on that list, education. <laughs> so you can just almost imagine Albert Einstein says, this is great. You have the entire world's knowledge in the palm of your hand. What do you do with it? Well, I play video games and tweet mean things at people I don't even know. Right? He'd be just like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going back. <laughs> It's a, pretty, it's a pretty interesting thing, right? We sent people to the moon with the computing power of a handheld calculator. I mean, people were literally putting rockets together with slide rules back in the 60s and 70s to put people on the moon. And that was amazing what we did. Now we have all this power power of computing in the palm of our hand and we spend more than 50% of all our money playing video games or on social media to say mean things to people we don't even know or care about right or to portray a lifestyle that we don't really have right listen to some music now there's nothing wrong with music and there's nothing wrong with any of this, but, you know, it's priorities. And it's interesting because I put out another tweet um, talking about, and this was, I think, Thursday or Friday of last week, um, talking about the issues of the younger generation coming up and the things that they face and, and the problems that they're going to face in the future and it's because of how they choose to spend money 
And this is the the interesting part about this is that, you know, the pushback that I got on that was, well, it's not fair because young people have to deal with student loan debt and they've got to deal with higher mortgage costs and all these type of things. And it's not really true. Nobody forces anybody to take out a student loan. That's not a required, you know, when you when you grow up in high school, they don't say, okay, your requirements for life are to get married, have a job, take out a student loan. That's not a requirement. Yes, a lot of people have taken out student loans. And there is plenty of evidence that show that a lot of people who take out student loans don't finish college. Or they did degrees that don't repay, they don't pay enough. The jobs from those degrees don't pay enough to support the amount of debt taken out. So there's a lot of personal choices engaged in that. Yes, housing costs are up because we choose to live in what, right? We all want nicer places, nicer houses, those type of things, supply and demand. But you just got, you just came from a period of time. Now think about this for a moment. We talk about housing costs. Housing costs are a function of interest rates. You just came out of a period of the lowest mortgage rates in the history of the known world. And the reason that housing costs were going up was is because people were going, hey, low interest rates, I can buy much nicer houses. People weren't going, hey, low mortgage rates, I can buy a house I can afford and actually wind up saving some money if I buy a reasonably modest house. No, we want to buy McMansions. We want to buy $300,000, $400,000 houses. And so the demand is there. What do you think the supply becomes? Supply and demand. $2,000 iPhones plus the monthly services. This streaming service, that streaming service. So I've got to have all these because, well, I need to be able to watch Hulu and Apple TV and all these other things, right? It's all about financial choices that we make. And this is the very difference in society today is that we've normalized a lot of these things saying, oh, yeah, we have to have these things. They're a need. I need a $2,000 iPhone. Do you really? Or could you get by with a flip phone that you could text people and call people on and email people from your computer, right? But but I won't have all this other stuff, right? I won't be able to do gaming, and I won't be able to do music, and I won't be able to do this other stuff on my phone and take pictures of my food um, if I don't have an iPhone and pay $2,000 for it. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. If that's what you want, then that's fine. But can you afford it? And, 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 and so this is the conundrum that we have gotten society into today, which is now we all want to commiserate with the wealth problem. Yet we don't promote a work ethic. As we talked about last week on the show, you know, we're now trying to figure out a way. And I thought it was an interesting, I, post, I posted out a, a chart on this as well. Uh, they took a survey and surprisingly, the vast majority of Americans, when surveyed, said, sure, I would like to work a four-day four work week of 32 hours. Now, when I was growing up, 
as an example, they had four-day work weeks for people in certain industries because they were very labor-intensive and very difficult, very tiring. Pipe fitters, those type of things, they'd work a four-day week. But the four-day week was 10 hours a day, and then they would have a three-day, they'd have three days off to recoup, and then they go back to work four 10-hour days. Or the rest of everybody worked five eight-hour days to get their 40 hours. So sure, when asked, Brent, would you like to have a four-day work week of 32 hours or a five-day work week of 40 hours, the pay is exactly the same. What would you choose? The lesser of the two evils. Oh, yeah. If I can get yeah. paid the, the if I can get paid the same amount of money for working eight hours less, what do you think people are going to choose? Exactly. <laughs> right? So we do this and we say, okay, hey, great. You can work eight hours less. So we lower productivity and, you know, these type of things. And then we want to wonder why that we have these financial issues in the country. And so I just think, and I think it's interesting when I get responses from people talking about how, well, just things aren't fair to this generation. I don't know. I'm, you know, I live in the same world you live in. <laughs> so... So I don't know how it's not fair, right? But these are the things that we need to think about what we're teaching our children and the views they have. You know, it's interesting. We'll come back. We'll talk about this after the break. Another interesting study out this morning talking about gene distribution. No, not blue genes. Genes, G-E-N-E. Gene distribution between successful and unsuccessful people. And we'll talk about what the results of that study were when we come back from the break. Don't go away. news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So just talking about for the break is it's interesting that when you poll people about different things, you know, again, what would you prefer, a 40-hour work week or a 32-hour work week, and your pay is the same. Now, I think the poll would be very different if you said, what would you prefer, a 40-hour work week? And again, let me ask the same question to Brent here a second ago. So Brent makes... You know, his salary and has a bonus every year based on his job that he does. And he spends a lot of time doing his job. It's a very intensive job that he does. And I say, hey, Brent, you know, do you want a 
work five days a week doing your job or four days a week doing your job and get paid the same amount of money. Your your salary and bonus will not change, but you can choose to work one day less a week. What do you think he's going to choose, right? Sure. Yeah, I'll take a three-day weekend every week. That'd be, be awesome. Now, what would that mean? Well, you wouldn't have a show on Fridays with Danny and Richard, right? So you would totally miss out on Janet Yellen and... <laughs> Um, who was he doing on Friday this past week? Oh, Marge from The Simpsons. Marge, yes. Yes. So you, would, which surprisingly sounds very similar to Janet Yellen. Have you noticed you've never seen them in the same room at the same time? Yeah, exactly. Richard and Marge, or yeah. Richard and Janet. Yeah, just it's probably a good thing. <laughs> now let's ask Brent the question a different way and see what his answer is. Now answer honestly. Okay. Don't do All it right. just for the sake of the show. Yeah. Okay. So you can choose to work five, five days a week mm-hmm. and have your current salary and bonus, mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. can have a four-day week, but you will earn 20% less. What would you choose? I'll be here on Friday. That's, and the, see, it, it's all about phrasing, right? And this is the interesting thing, is that you know if you want to work four-day work weeks, that sounds awesome, but you lose a full day of productivity. And for businesses... That means a day where I'm not producing as much, those type of things. And, of course, that affects profitability and salaries and wages and all these type of things. So just something to consider. But this goes to a very uh, another interesting point about success and what drives success and what doesn't drive success. And I, and I thought this was interesting because there was a very interesting chart out. Um, this was... Um, put out in the Washington Post. I was trying to find the source of it. Here, let me see if I can drag this over here real quick and so you can maybe show this on our screen for our viewers and they can can look at it. I can't enlarge this a lot, but... I think you get the idea. So what this, what this chart in the Washington Post showed... And there, there's two parts of this, so I'll, I'll get to the second part of this in a second. So let's do the first part first. It talks about genes predicting academic success are almost evenly distributed. So in other words, what it says is, is, is that you know those with a lower genetic score tend to have less economic success, uh, less academic success, and those with a higher genetic score tend to have better success. So you know basically, if your parents are a genius couple odds are your kids are going to be pretty smart right there's a little bit of a fallacy with that now again what they're looking at is they're looking at okay here's the breakdown of the population distribution of genes associated with educational attainment but you know when you think about this it's also about environmental factors when i was growing up my parents were both teachers okay my parents were not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination my my dad was a blue collar worker worked janitorial at a at a, at a after he left it he, he was a biology teacher to start with my mom taught english and my dad my mom went to basically raise kids at home and this was what you did back in the 60s and 70s. My mom came home to, to raise the kids. My dad worked for a big chemical company, started out work basically as a janitor in the uh, chemistry department, cleaning 
vials and test tubes and those type of things after experiments were done. Worked his way up over the years. He worked there for a very long time, worked his way up. He eventually became manager for the Versine warehouse, et cetera. So, but, but again, he worked very hard to do that. And again, never made more than just kind of the median wage of the entire country. So, you know, we lived in a small 1,100-square-foot house, three bedrooms, one-and-a-half bath, very modest. It's like I told you before here on the show, my dad always made his, his favorite philosophy was, I made sure you had everything you needed, not necessarily everything you wanted. Right? That was the way we grew up. 13, when, when my brother and I turned 13, we were required to go get jobs. And it wasn't a function of, you know, well, Dad, I can't get a job at Chick-fil-A because they don't hire people at 13. No, but there's a push lawn boy lawnmower in the garage and there's a bucket with a sponge. Walk down the street and ask people to wash cars and mow lawns. And that's what we did, right? But we had to be working when we turned 13. It wasn't a choice. And education was a very important part of our household. Both my parents were teachers. Now, Gene's predicting academic success. Says that if you have genes in your pool that are poor, right, then your kids are going to be poor in terms of educational attainment. Same thing with your rich, right? Educational. My dad's IQ was not off the charts. <laughs> By any stretch of the imagination. He would tell you that, by the way. <laughs> but my parents focused and made sure that education was a big part of our upbringing. They made us focus. We had to get good grades in school. We weren't allowed to, to read books of fantasy and fiction when I was growing up. We read encyclopedias. My parents bought a full set of Britannica encyclopedias and subscribed to the National Geographic. That's what we read growing up. So it's not a function entirely of just genes, right? Just looking at genes and saying genes determine outcomes. That's not true. I know people who came from very, very poor upbringings and became overwhelming successes. A couple of people you might know, like Jeff Bezos as an example, and others. I've, I've written articles about capitalism on our website and gone through a whole list of people that started with nothing and built major empires. So just because you are brought up in a poor household or have uneducated parents doesn't mean that you're locked into that. A lot of this has to do with environment. But again, if you just think about the reality of the situation in the world that we live in, if you have a household that has poor educational genes, right, that's getting passed down to children. There's the, the parents weren't focused on education, so they're probably not going to teach their kids to be focused on education. That's just the way it is. We don't know better. That's how we, you know, raise our, I, this is the way I was raised. This is the way I'm going to raise my kids, right? And so... I told you the way I was raised, that's the way I raised my kids. So the way I raised my kids was the same way that I was raised by my parents. It's, it's, a, it's a societal 
chain that happens. And if we want to fix that, we have to change the way, and, and we can go to the next chart now because this kind of brings it home. If we want to change the outcomes in society, we need to change the way that we educate our children and, and how we educate our children. You know, so we're going to be doing a seminar, not a seminar, but we're going to do a show on the Wealthy on channel coming up fairly soon, and we'll publish it here on our website as well about raising money smart kids. We all have the ability to raise money smart kids, but in most, go back to that chart. I'm not done with it yet. I'm not there yet. I'm put the chart back up. I'll get there. We all want to raise money smart kids, right? We want all of our kids to be a success, but we also have to teach them the dynamics of doing the right things with money. And see, again, this becomes a habit of monkey see, monkey do. Our kids see how we, how we act, and then our kids want to replicate us. So if we act smart with money, our kids will want to act smart with money because they will want to replicate the success. In today's world, as I said earlier, you know, going back to talking about game revenue, you know, for phones, right? We spend a lot of time on our phones playing games. Our kids watch that. Our kids see that. They want to replicate that. How much time you spend on social media, our kids will replicate that. But it was interesting because if you take a look at, so the gene scores are evenly distributed which says that everybody pretty much has an equal shot at either educational attainment or educational failure based on the distribution of genes. But when it comes down to success, the observed success is concentrated among high-income families. And that's not really surprising either because it's the environment in which the kids are raised. In most high-income families, they focus more on education, better schooling, better habits, and that's the choice that we have. We don't have to be locked into the society that we, that we were brought into. We can break that habit. And this is the point of raising money smart kids is that we can give our, regardless of the environment that we're in today, whether you're a middle income family, a low income family or a high income family, you can increase the odds of success by establishing good behaviors for yourself that they will then translate into good financial and educational and success behaviors for your children. But that'll be it. We're going to, like I said, we'll be doing a whole sip, a presentation on Money Smart Kids here soon. Um, we just did one recently on our channel as well. You'll find it at realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. Uh, get by the website. Our blog post is out as well as our latest uh, daily market commentary. It's on the website this morning. It's all there for you to help you out. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.